Well, the message has already been given, but I'm going to give it to you again in case you didn't get it the first time, all right? If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to two places this morning, Matthew chapter 26 and John chapter 19. And today we're beginning a two-week series on death arrested. I think so many people do not realize exactly what uh, this time of year really represents. Uh, of course, Easter's next week, and uh, of course, today we're looking at that part of the story of Easter, and we're beginning to tell that story. But I want to just say that the goal of this message this morning is to give you much scripture as it relates to the death and burial of Jesus Christ. Also, I want to give you the clearest picture surrounding the events of Jesus' death, the purpose of his death. And if you'll look on your outline there, if you have that with you, you can see the blanks are already filled in. And the reason I wanted to do that is because I wanted you to focus more on the scripture this morning. I want you to see something as we uh, go into this message. I want you to be able to see exactly what God's word says about this time. So look at the introduction. It was by way of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that death was arrested and salvation was made available for those who believe. The Old Testament points the way to Jesus' death. The Gospels report on the events of, the de of Jesus' death, while the epistles give us the reasons behind the death of Jesus. In Isaiah, if you study Isaiah much, you'll see that there are many clues as to what would happen to the Messiah as it related to his death. And we see here, he says, uh, the writer, the prophet, 600 years before the New Testament, he says, surely he has bore our grief and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken. That's the Messiah. We know him as Jesus. We see him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity and the chastisement for our peace was upon him by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We turn everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, think of this, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. You see, the Old Testament predicted his coming. The New Testament, with a familiar verse surrounding the death of Jesus, reads like this, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So the Gospels recorded what would take place when it, as it related to our salvation. You see, according to the plan of God the Father, without the death of his Son and the resurrection from that death, there's no salvation and there's no hope for us. Therefore, death itself had to be arrested. It's interesting uh, with a, a title like that, death arrested. I went and did a little research on the word arrested. I think we're all familiar with what death is. But when it comes to this word arrested, if you really look at it, it means to take by legal authority, to take into custody, Medically, it means this. This is interesting as it relates to a definition. It literally means to stop the active progress of a disease. Of course, our disease is sin. Our disease is we were born in that sin. 
And something had to come and bring that healing. And Isaiah prophesied that. And then we came to the, come to the New Testament and we're given the recorded evidence that that happened. And then the epistles tell us how that relates to each of us. And, and we see it so clearly. But how? How did all this come about? We've sung about all these different things this morning. But I want us to look into God's word. I want us to look at the details of labor in those last hours of Jesus' life. And the first thing we see there are the trials. I want you to think about the trials, the, those who brought charges against Jesus himself. What's interesting is the first charges came from the religious, the religious crowd. They're the ones that brought the first charges. They're the ones who demanded that the Messiah be killed. So there he is, Jesus. He's standing before the high priest and the, the religious brought about the charges against him. In Matthew chapter 26, I want you to look there in just a moment. We're going to read, but I want you to understand what's happened. So far, he's been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was there. He, he was there praying. You remember the story. He was crying out to God. Does this really have to happen? And of course, we know that he says, not my will, but thy will. And he began his march to Calvary's cross. And what was interesting about it all was the fact that, that it would be the religious who would bring about the charges, the religious elite of the day. In Matthew chapter 26, look at verse 62. And it says, and the high priest arose and said to Jesus, do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? You see, they began to parade these groups of people in front of Jesus and, 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 and they began to tell what they heard him say. And Jesus sat there and he, he said nothing just as it was prophesied in Isaiah. He said, do you answer nothing what these men have to say to you or say about you? Verse 63, but Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, what's interesting about all that is, is the priest took on godly authority, yet he's standing there and he's trying to bring charges to the Son of God. Don't you find that kind of interesting? And then it says, verse 64, Jesus said to him, it is as you have said, nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand, and it's interesting how this is phrased, of the power, the power being God the Father, the authority, the one who, who is there. Uh, the, the high priest claimed he was speaking on the authority of God the Father, but he was not. It was the Son of God standing there speaking with that authority. And basically, Jesus is basically saying, and I love the phraseology of this. He's basically saying, and guess what? You're not going to like me when you see me again. Because he's coming back. And he'll be the one bringing the charges. And we see this so clearly. He says, I'm coming on the clouds of heaven. Verse 65, then the high priest tore his clothes saying, he has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you've heard yourself, his blasphemy. But what do you think? They answered and said, he is deserving of death. Now again, this is the Sanhedrin. This is the religious elite. This is those who've been studying the Bible all their life, looking for the Messiah. And the Messiah shows up and they said, he's worthy of death. Put him to death. Verse 67. Again, this is, this, most of us think the Roman soldiers did this. This is the religious elite. Then they began to, then they spat in his face and beat him, and others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy to us, Christ. 
who is the one who struck you. Skip down to chapter 27, look at verse 1. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius, the, Pontius Pilate, the governor. Have you, ever, have you ever sat there and wondered that through this whole story, how in the world did the religious elite, how did they miss it? How did they miss it? It's so clear in scripture who Jesus was. You go back and look and you see that he was the one. There was one crying out in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. John the Baptist did that. It's clearly written in scripture that would take place. And then all of a sudden, Jesus comes on the scene, and there are those who are healed. The death began to hear, and, and the, he raised people from the dead, and yet they still missed it. How can we miss it? We would be considered by many in the world the religious. We, we gather here during the proper times that we know we should be here on the, on the day that we celebrate the resurrection, whether you're talking about next Sunday or every Sunday of the year. We're always here. Many would say we're the religious elite now. Is it possible that we could miss it? By all means we could. We could come into a place like this and Sunday after Sunday after Sunday hear the word of God just as they did. They not only heard the word of God, they taught the word of God. And yet they missed it. How is it possible to study God's word the way they did and the way we do and still possibly miss the message? It's because of deception. It's deception that plagues us with this. You see, if we're not careful, we can set up traditions like they did. You do know that the reason they missed it is because they began to rewrite the, some of the very words of God. They began to put traditions into their traditions, the traditions of men into the equation of God to, to look for the Messiah, and they totally missed it. And it's possible for us to do the very same thing. Have you ever wondered if Jesus chose to show up here now, would we miss it? Would we miss it because of all the things we've added? Because maybe we've created him in our own image. And not in the image of God's word. It's so possible. These men that lived in the first century, the religious elite, they, they, they were not people who, were, who, who lived in rebellion necessarily. It, it revealed the rebellion when the Messiah showed up. But up to that point, they were considered the most well-known, the most respected people of the day. They were God's people according to many others. But Jesus exposed all that. If he showed up here today, what would he expose? What kind of hypocrisy are we holding or do we have that, that would be exposed when he showed up? We claim we're this and we say we're this and, and we begin to do this and we want to be the church of God. But, but are we truly? Could we be missing it? It's very possible. It's very possible. It's interesting that the religious then turned him over to the Romans of that day, the government. Jesus would go before Pilate, then Herod. Herod just happened to be in town that weekend. And then he goes back from Herod, because Herod found anything, nothing wrong with him, sent him back to Pilate, said, really, he's your problem. And that's where we read about the scourging. 
I want you to look at John chapter 19, verse 1. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. What Pilate was hoping to do, he'd already talked to Jesus. He couldn't find anything wrong with him. And, and so he was trying to appease the Jews. He was trying to keep peace in the region. And so basically he says, I tell you what, let's just go out here. We, we're not going to execute him, but let's beat him. Maybe that'll be enough for him. Maybe that will shut them up. John chapter 19, we see that they tied him to a pillar and began to do what we call scourge him. It's interesting, we have two types of scourging in the first century. The Jews had their version of scourging. The Jews basically said that they could whip someone 39 times and the intent was not to kill a person. For one thing, in the first century, they didn't have the right to kill anyone. The government took that right. And so they limited it to 39. Some of it came from God's word. Some of it's what they added in God's word. But they limited it. The intent of scourging was not to kill a person. The Romans, however, could beat you however long they wanted to. It was unlimited. And many times the intention was to kill the person. And when you begin to see the scourging and the whip that was created, many of you know this, but the whip was not just some leather strap. There, were, there, there, were, there was metal and, the, and there was bone that was put into the leather strap. And what they would do is they would whip the person, they would yank the whip, and it would tear the flesh many times, exposing bone and vital organs. You see, what we're reading about is what's written in the psalm, by the psalmist and what's written by Isaiah. And we begin to see, man, this was predicted. This, this has all been in place from, from the very beginning. First Peter, that letter tells us that, that Jesus, the whole idea of Jesus coming and die for our sins, that thought, that plan was even before the foundations of the world. Before there were sinners, there was a Savior. Jesus always, God always had a plan and included his son. So we have the beating. Next, we have the mocking. In John chapter 19, verse 2, and the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and they put a purple robe on him. And they said, hail, king of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands. Next, we have the accusations in John chapter 19, verse 5. Then Jesus came out. Wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, behold the man. Here's the man. Is this good enough? Basically, that's what Pilate was saying. I find no fault in him. He's going to tell us that later. He's like, hey, hey, I beat him. I've, I've mocked him. We brought accusations, but nothing really sticks. And your accusations really mean nothing to us. So he presents them or presents Jesus. Look at verse six. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out saying, crucify him, crucify him. Again, this is the religious elite. This is those who thought they knew the purposes of God, the plans of God, that they were God's children, that they were God. When, they, when God would look at them, they really thought that God saw something in them, something that was worthy, something that was admirable. Yet they're the ones being used in the plan to destroy or attempt to destroy his only begotten son. Pilate said to them, and I, have to, I happen to believe this probably was out of frustration. He said, you take him and crucify him. I find no fault in him. Verse 7, the Jews answered him, we have a law and according to our law, he ought to die. Because he made himself 
the Son of God. Isn't it amazing that the secular world at that time didn't see anything wrong with what he was doing? But the religious elite demanded his death? From the trials, we move to the crucifixion. And the first thing we see there, the sayings on the cross. The sayings on the cross, if you read between the lines, you can see exactly what's happening behind the scenes. You see, the things that we think about when we think of the crucifixion, we think of the nails, we think of the spear, we think of the uh, many times the beatings and, and the tearing of flesh. And, and all of a sudden, we're looking here and we're seeing Jesus say certain things. And what he is revealing in those sayings is really what's going on around him that people can't see. But we can see him based on the word of God. We know what's really going on. And so we see, it says in Luke chapter 23, it says this. Look here on the screen. It says, and when they come to the place called Calvary, they crucified him and the criminals on the right hand and on the left. And Jesus said this, forgive them. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Father, they don't know the grand plan. They've totally missed it. The ones that whipped me, the ones that drove these spikes in my hands, the one who's done all these terrible, brought this terrible violence on me. Father, forgive them. They don't really understand what's going on. Do you hear the compassion in Jesus' words? You know why he was saying it that way? Because what was being measured right then, and even what we read today and sing about, we sing about all these things, we read about all these things, but there was something going on behind the scenes. There was a grand plan. And it says, and they divided his garments and cast lots. If you continue in Luke chapter 23 and go down to verse 44, it says, now it was about the sixth hour. We know that to be noon. And there was darkness over the whole earth until the ninth hour. That's around 3 p.m. Then the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two. Boy, you're talking about reading behind the scenes of what's really going on. This is a perfect place. You see, at this moment, death was arrested and made possible a new kind of relationship with God. When that veil in that temple was ripped apart, guess what? That meant there would be a new relationship that would be made possible with God through Jesus Christ and this death that would take place. And it was there that death was arrested and our sin was atoned for and, and that now we can walk in boldness before the throne of God through Jesus Christ. A new relationship is now possible. And we're seeing it. It's, it's coming alive. The plan is being revealed. And when Jesus cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. No one was taking his life. He was laying his life down. Having said this, he breathed his last. Again, the sayings of Jesus. Jesus said, my God, my God. You remember this one? Why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned your back on me? You see, we, at, at face value, we, we may not understand what's happening, but we know what's happening based on what we read in Isaiah chapter 53. It's because the sins, all the sins of the world, all our sins were placed upon him. And we know a holy God cannot look upon sin. And so we know based on Isaiah chapter 53, what we read earlier, that sin was placed upon him. But not only that, the wrath that was deserving of that sin was also placed upon him. 
It was bad enough that something perfect and holy would be touched by our detestable sin. But guess what? It wasn't just that that was placed on him. According to what God's word says, God's wrath was placed upon him. I don't know that we get our minds around that much. And then Jesus said, we know in John chapter 19, he didn't say it's time to die. He didn't say that. He said what? He said, it is finished. Death has been arrested. It's been taken care of. It's there. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. You see, the sayings reveal much about Jesus and his purpose for coming. Next, we see the suffering on the cross. In John chapter 19, if you look at verse 17, it says, And Jesus, bearing his cross, went to a place called the place of the skull, which is in Hebrew, Golgotha. And that is where they crucified him, the two others with him, on one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now, Pilate wrote a title and put on it, on that cross, and the writing was this, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. You see, when a person was executed... That, ex that execution was meant to be very public. It was meant to say, don't do this. You see this person? If you do what this person has done, this is your death. And so above them would be the charges that would come against that person, whether it was treason or, 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 or murder or whatever it may be. And, and the, the, one that, the thing that it said above him, and the only thing that Pilate could say is, hey, listen, his only fault was that he said he was king, king of the Jews. Pilate found no fault in him. He was basically washing his hands of the whole thing and placing it firmly on the shoulders of the Jews. That's exactly what he was doing. And that's what we read. The sufferings of the cross, the six hours on the cross, the nails the, in the feet and the palms, and the, the muscles and flesh stretched, the struggle to breathe, all that has taken place. You skip down to verse 31 of John 19. Therefore, because it was preparation day, of course, preparation day is a whole idea they were preparing for the Passover, that the body should remain, that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath. For that Sabbath was a high day. That was the Passover weekend. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they may be taken away. Basically, if you break the legs of someone who's on a cross, they can't breathe any longer because evidently everything, everything collapses in. And so the only way these guys could breathe on the cross, the only way Jesus was able to breathe is he would lift up to catch a, a breath and then come back down. And every time he breathed, that motion was carried on and on and on for hours and we know Jesus was on that cross for six hours. And there was the struggle. So if you break the legs, the person would suffocate. And so they were saying, hey, we need to move on with this. In verse 32, then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who was crucified him. But they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead. They didn't break his legs. Again, that was prophecy. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. That was also prophecy. But what's interesting is that that whole scene of blood and water coming out basically tells us it was a medical determined death. Because we know when there's water mixed in with the blood that the cells are self-destructing. This is death. A sign of death. And he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true and he knows that he is not telling he that he is telling the truth so that you may believe 
I want you to turn to Romans chapter 5. Can, can I tell you this? It's not enough to know that the Old Testament predicted the, this scene. It's not enough that we even have the report of the scene. We can walk away here and think, boy, boy, we know the story of God, don't we? We know the plan that he had, and boy, it sure cost his son a lot. And we can walk out of here and with great admiration as to what took place. But y'all, if it, if it doesn't shake us to our core, if it doesn't change who we are, we've totally missed the plan. We, we're, no great, we're no better than the religious elite in the first century who believed that we somehow can make ourselves acceptable before holy God. And if we leave out of here with nothing more than admiration, we've totally missed it. We've got to be aware that something happened in those moments. When Jesus, listen, was in the garden asking God to take his, this cup from him on that day, he was not crying out because of what a man would do to him. He wasn't crying out about what the spikes would feel like going through his palms and his feet. He wasn't out there talking about the scourging and the, the flesh being ripped upon, off his back. He, he wasn't worried about any of that. He wasn't worried about what man would do. He was, he was concerned about what would happen between him and the father. Sin would be placed upon him. The father would have to forsake him. How do we know? Jesus said it. Then the wrath, that sin has to be punished according to the authority of God. All sin must be punished. And he took on our sin. That's what he was concerned about. That sin would be judged upon him. Your sin, my sin, all because he loved us. And desired to provide hope to us through salvation. So what does it look like? What does Paul say about it? What do the, epistles, do the epistles say? So look on your outline. The declaration of love in those last hours. Number one, the proof of God's love. The Old Testament predicted it. New Testament reported it. But the epistle now is going to give us the purpose. In Romans chapter 5, look at verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. How did it happen? Through the Lord Jesus Christ, through the proceedings that took place on the cross that day, that's how it was made possible. That's how I can be acceptable to God. And then it says in verse 2, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Skip down to verse 6. For when we were still without strength, when there was nothing we could do about our situation, when it was hopeless, when, it, when we were helpless, in due time, at the appointed time of God, Christ died, arrested death for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, listen, it's more than that. Based on the authority of God's word, we weren't just more than sinners. We were enemies of God because of that sin. Yet he still reached out in that we were still sinners. Listen, Christ died for us. He put it all on the line. Next, we see the provision of God's love. In Romans chapter five, look at verse nine. Much more than having been justified, been made acceptable before God. How? By his blood, through the events of the cross, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Why do we know that? Because our sin was placed on him. God's wrath was poured out upon him. We know it's been taken care of. That's the provision 
Verse 10, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved. How? By his life. Not by your life. Not by anything that you can offer. Not by good works. Not through baptism. Not through anything. How are we saved? By his life. His life is the one that arrested death. His life is the one that changed everything. His life is what makes you acceptable before God. Nothing else. It was through his life, his death, and of course, as we'll see next week, his resurrection. Because of the cross, Jesus made it possible for us to have a relationship with the one who created us. He also showed us how we can identify with this most important event. So look at the application. Jesus died on the cross that you could be forgiven. And God's wrath appeased towards you. you listen, you come to God on God's terms by way of Jesus you'll never have to face the wrath of God. How do you come to those terms? Number one, you gotta admit that you're a sinner. You gotta admit, listen, you gotta admit that your sin was placed on him. And not only that, you gotta believe. You gotta believe. I'm not just talking about head knowledge. I'm not talking about walking out of here today with a lot of knowledge about what that day was all about and the fact that Jesus died on a cross and, and all that and you walk away here and you admire him for what he did. It's more than that. It's believing, but it's a belief, listen, that radically changes everything about you. You ever had a belief like that? That's the kind of belief this is talking about. And then see, there's a whole idea of confession and commitment. There's that whole idea that, yes, I'm not worthy of anything Jesus provided for me. I'm not worthy to be called the son of God. I'm not worthy of any of that in and of myself. But because of what he did on my behalf, I am worthy. I've gone from being an enemy of God to a friend of God. Even more than that, son of God, child of God. Even more than that, he's now daddy. He's not just some distant God any longer. Uh, Jesus ushered him, ushered me into that relationship with him that's clearly defined now as a relationship between a father and a child. That's what he's offering. Now, how will you respond to this labor of love? Second question, how will you remember his provision of salvation? Have you ever thought about communion? When we were putting this service together, or this gathering, our attempt was to bring it all the way to the communion. Our attempt was for you to take part in a communion that you would think about what really was provided for you on that day on that cross. And let me just tell you this. Jesus commanded us to remember that day. Did you know that? He commanded us. He says, do this in remembrance of me. Now, Jesus said, as I said, to remember his death, what he did on our behalf, what it cost him, what it provides us. And guess what? He said, when you do this, don't take it lightly. 
take it very seriously. Paul said this concerning communion. Listen to what he says, 1 Corinthians 11. This is from the message, a paraphrase of God's word. Anyone who eats the bread or drinks the cup of the master irreverently is like part of the crowd that jeered and spit on him at his death. Is that the kind of remembrance you want to be a part of? Do you really want to be remember, remember that like that? How about this? Examine your motives. Test your heart. Come to this moment of communion in holy awe. And then he says this. Here's the warning. If you give no thought or worse, don't care about the broken body of the master when you eat and drink, you're running the risk, listen, of serious consequences. You know what he's saying? You don't make a mockery of this. So here it is. We're getting ready to take communion. Here it is. I want you to think about this. Not to be taken lightly. Not to be taken lightly. It's one of those things where if there's something in your life, if there's something there that's not resolved between you and him, he wants to restore that fellowship. He wants it restored right now. This communion is also for those who've trusted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So if you haven't come to that point in your life right now, you don't need to be taking part in this because what we're about to do won't be a reality, is not a reality for you until you come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So what we're going to do, what we're going to do is, I just want you to stand with me at this moment. And we are, we're going to, with your heads bowed, we're going to have an uh, invitation. We're not going to sing. We're just going to reflect on what we just talked about. We're going to reflect on the cross. We're going to reflect on the provision of Jesus Christ. We're going to reflect on where we stand even right now as individuals standing in this room. We're going to reflect on all that. So with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I, I just want to ask you to think about this. Number one, have you taking part in the provision of Jesus Christ. Can you stand here today and say, yes, I know him. Yes, I've accepted his provision. Yes, I want all that he has for me. And if that's the case, that's great. But here it is. Do you know him this morning? If you don't, we'd love to stand here at the front and show you how you can enter that personal relationship with him. Second of all, Maybe you're a Christian, and you know right now the fellowship between you and him is strained right now. Maybe you know him. Maybe you've uh, accepted that provision of salvation, but you know you're not where you used to be with him. You know there's something there that needs to be made right. You can do that right there in your seat. You can come get around this altar. You can have a pastor pray with you. I'll be here at the front. We just want to take these moments to reflect on what we're about to partake of. Would you reflect with me? Father, we pray you have your way in this. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed. Maybe you need the altar. Maybe you need someone to pray with you. We're here. Just let him speak to your heart in these moments.
Father, again, we just thank you for your son, and we thank you for that sacrifice and that provision. And Father, as we turn our hearts towards this thing that you've called us to remember, Lord, I just pray that uh, we just realize uh, what it costs you. We thank you for this opportunity to, to take communion. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you be seated, please? I ask the men to come forward at this time. And we're going to ask you, it's a little different this morning. They're only going to pass through one time this morning. There's actually two cups in every slot, okay? So just go ahead and pull out those two cups. And uh, the bread is underneath and uh, the juice is on top. It's just a little different this morning. So I want to encourage you to, to do that. And so in just a moment, we will read some more verses and then we'll take the communion right now. We just want you to hold it and continue to reflect on what God is doing in your life. And Does everyone have one that needs one this morning? Okay. Jesus said in his word that we are to remember his death and sacrifice by observing communion. 
In Matthew chapter 26, verse 26, it says, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, and broke it, gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. He then took the cup, gave thanks, gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is shed for many, which is shed for you, for the remissions of sin. Therefore, we are to eat the bread to remember his body sacrificed on our behalf and drink the juice to remember the blood that was shed on our behalf. I want you to stand, please. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 29, it continues. Jesus said, But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day. He's talking about that day when we're all together in heaven. He says, When I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And then it said this, which I found amazing. It said, And when they had finished, just before they went to the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, it's interesting, they sang a song. Some people believe that they may have sang it there in that meeting or they may have sang it as they were going to the Mount of Olives. But would you sing with us at this time? 